You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I think the more companies can try to strip out the bias by really focusing on the data, not the subjective things, but the objective performance metrics, then you are going to have men and women promoted far more equitably. And I ultimately am really optimistic because the data points to the value of diversity. And if we can lean into the data and away from the bias, companies, individuals, we're all gonna be more successful. Your life is gonna change. Jobs, kids, houses. Are you financially ready for everything that comes your way? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today because you've got a lot to look forward to, but you wanna be prepared. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. I'm very excited for this show today because we are going to talk about women in power who found a problem, struck out on their own to fix it, made the world a better place, and earned a boatload of money in the process, which sounds like the dream, right? The dream. Over the years, we have had some amazing female entrepreneurs on our show. I love all of those shows, hearing about their successes, helping you, our listeners, follow in their footsteps. The only problem is there are not enough of these women out there. When it comes to rising to the top in business, whether that means founding a successful company or breaking into the C-suite, there are still far too many barriers for women. Only 8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women, and that number goes all the way down to 1% if you're looking at women of color. For women entrepreneurs, the path to growing a business by securing investors, it's extra tough. Last year, just 2% of venture funding went to female founders. When women do get that funding, it is half the amount that male founders raised, and they're often grilled by investors about their skills and experience in a way that men just don't have to worry about. But it's not only women who suffer when we face these barriers. It's men. It's corporations. It's the economy, because women make excellent leaders. And when they're not at the top of the ladder, the world loses out on new ideas, on better products, on bigger profits. Our guest today saw this over and over again in her career as a reporter, and she wanted to set the record straight on women in business. Julia Borston is senior media and tech correspondent for CNBC and a regular host of the network's Tech Check program. She's also the creator of the CNBC Disruptor 50, an annual list that highlights private companies that are transforming the economy. And she helped launch the network's Closing the Gap initiative, which covers people and companies who are working to close gender and diversity gaps. Over the past few years, Julia has been on a mission to shine a light on women business leaders. After looking at the research and interviewing more than 60 female CEOs and executives, she found that despite all the challenges that women face, we make great managers, decision makers, and innovators, and there should just be more of us leading companies. She put it all into her latest book, 
When women lead, what they achieve, why they succeed, and how we can learn from them. Julia, welcome. Such a pleasure to have you here. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you. So I want to start with you. And I want to start with what you've seen over the course of your career. You've interviewed CEOs, you've reported on companies, you've been doing this like I have for decades now. What were you noticing that made you want to write this book? So I was noticing that women were always in a tiny minority. I mean, you mentioned that 8% stat from the Fortune 500. And, you know, women were always in a minority in terms of leadership roles. And I started seeing them more and more um, atop some really interesting companies. But also at the Disruptor 50, my list of the 50 fastest growing startups that I love working on every year at CNBC, I got to interview a lot of these innovators. And I was so impressed by the female founders, because not only had they defied these crazy odds and managed to secure a piece of that tiny 2% of venture capital funding that went to women, but they also were running and launching these amazing companies that were trying to do things fundamentally differently. Some of them were creating products and services that were really targeted at women. I think of Sally Krawcheck from Elevest, who's creating a financial services company just for women, or Rent the Runway founder, Jen Hyman, Katrina Lake, founder of Stitch Fix, The Real Reels, Julie Wainwright, those three women really transformed the way retail works, the way people get dressed every day. So they were taking a really comprehensive view of what it meant to create an innovative startup and not just trying to have a quick sale of their company to a buyer, but really wanted to change the way business worked. I was so impressed by them. And I was so struck by those crazy statistics you mentioned about how these women had defied the odds, I wanted to know how they had done it. I've been in my job at CNBC for 16 years. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm very risk averse, clearly. And I was just fascinated by them. And I wanted also to tell their stories. There are a couple dominant images of female tech founders in our culture, and one of them is Elizabeth Holmes. Mm -hmm. You can't drive, I live in Los Angeles, you can't drive more than a couple blocks before you see a billboard of a TV show about her. And while those shows are fascinating, it just perpetuates this idea that female CEOs maybe aren't so good. Maybe they're going to have disastrous companies like Theranos. And I really wanted to share these inspiring, phenomenal, surprising stories so people have some other models of what really good female leadership looks like. Yeah, I agree with you. I wish... A part of me wishes just, you know, that she hadn't been a woman and we could have had that same compelling TV drama without it. But I did enjoy watching the show. You, I you, did too. <laughs> you talk about Sheryl Sandberg and Lean In and how she was an inspiration for you and your own career. That book came out in 2013. What did you feel was missing still from the cultural conversation about women leaders that you wanted to add? I mean, I think, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's book is a very different type of book. It's a book in telling women that they need to ask for a seat at the table and they need to lean into their careers and they need to not be afraid. Her book has also drawn a lot of criticism for not being relevant to the vast majority of women in this country who may not be able to afford childcare to work those extra hours or do those extra things and to really being most applicable to women of great privilege. I feel like I have a lot of privilege. I'm very aware of my own privilege. And her book did encourage me to speak up and try to not be as 
afraid at work. But I do think that her book was at a very specific time. It was before the Me Too Times Up movement. And I think there have been a lot more female-founded companies and female leaders of Fortune 500 companies since then. And I think the conversation has changed. I do also think that, you know, it was five years ago that the Time's Up Me Too movement started. Yes. And I reported on a lot of that at CNBC. And I think that served a very important role for sort of redefining what appropriate behavior is in the workplace. But I felt like the conversation hadn't really moved on from that. And I'm a positive person. I like to tell positive stories. And I didn't want to dwell on that negativity of what men had done wrong. I wanted to tell the stories of what women were doing right. And so my book is not a lean-in book. It's not a Time's Up Me Too book. It is a book telling the inspiring stories that will surprise you and make you think differently about what female leaders are and how everybody of all genders should be emulating their leadership styles. When I looked at the data that you dug into, and I just touched on a very small part of it, I mean, there were some findings about women leaders that I think, to your point, we should know about, that women leaders are more empathetic and vulnerable and therefore better leaders. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And I actually, one reason I'm so optimistic about female leaders is that I think that the pandemic really shed light on the importance of some of the characteristics that women traditionally are more likely to lead with or typically are more likely to embrace. And those include vulnerability. They include empathy. They also include gratitude. And these may seem like things that have nothing to do with leadership, nothing to do with power and business. But in fact, I believe they are absolutely essential to connect with your customers, to connect with your employees, to motivate people in these crazy times. And even though my book is about female founders and female leaders, I think the lessons that we can glean from them are widely applicable to literally everyone. Whether you're a mom running your PTA or you're helping a friend with a nonprofit, we all need to figure out how not only to be more effective, but also to figure out what our own traits are. Not to try to fit into someone else's box and definition of what a leader looks like, but what are our own traits that could be effective in leadership? What are our own effectively leadership superpowers? On the list of those superpowers that you pointed to, you mentioned that women are more likely to have a social purpose at work, more likely to increase diversity, to embrace change. Those things did not surprise me. But the fact that you found women are better than men at navigating stressful situations and preparing for the worst, I was like, whoa, talk about that. So yes, so many different pieces of this. And I particularly love the study. You can actually test your empathy quotient. There's an online test. I have it on my website, juliaborston.com. And you can test how well you rate on empathy. I rate it a lot higher than my husband. And women generally rate higher than men on that. But I think this idea of adaptability and being prepared for crisis. I have a chapter on how women navigated the crisis of the pandemic. Now, this is the biggest crisis to hit our economy, to hit our world since World War II. And what I found in the research is that women were very good at analyzing data to understand what to do next. They weren't waiting to be reactive. They were saying, what are the numbers telling me now? I'm willing to drop my plan. I'm not going to have some emotional attachment or my ego tied up in a plan that I made six months ago or a year ago. I'm going to be driven by the data, and I'm not going to think that I have all the answers. I'm going to go to the people on the ground who are closest to those in need. I feature the CEO of Feeding America, who's an amazing woman, Claire Babineau-Fontenot, the CEO of Care USA. They do international aid relief in 69 countries. What 
they realized is they didn't have all the answers. They were working from home. They had to go down and talk to the people in the food banks, have frequent surveys of people in the food banks, frequent surveys of people who are working on the ground in those countries all over the world, because they knew by having that data, listening to people from all over the world who might have more insights than they do, that's how they're going to make the best decisions. So it's a combination of a lot of things. It's being prepared, maybe less risk-taking in the first place, and then also having a communal leadership style, understanding that you don't have all the answers and that you will only get stronger if you gather data from those all across your organization. You interviewed more than 60 women, and you've named some of the ones who are women that we all admire, some of the women who've been on this podcast before. I would love to hear some of the stories that really stuck out to you that are emblematic of why you think these women are successful. Well, you know, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about purpose-driven companies, because I think that women measure success in perhaps a different way. Yes, they want to make money, but women are far more likely than men to launch companies that also have an additional purpose beyond just profits, a purpose aligned with a social good or an environmental impact. And there's a lot of data that purpose-driven companies are more successful. And there are a couple of reasons for that. It's easier to attract talent and motivate your workers if you have an extra purpose. It's easier to sell your product to customers if you say, hey, not only are you getting this product, but it's going to have a, a social good as well. And then also a lot of the women I talked to said when times got tough, when they got discouraged, when they didn't know if they could go on, they drew on the fact that they were going to help people if their idea worked. And they drew on the fact that it's not just about returning money to my investors. It's not just proving those guys who told me I couldn't do it wrong. It's also that I know if I can make this work in success, my idea, my business will help a ton of people. And that motivating force is incredibly powerful. And I just have to name some of the women who had these purpose-driven companies because they are finding massive success. There's a woman named Shivani Saroya. She runs a company called Tala that does microloans in emerging markets. The financial services companies, the banks, can't do microloans to people who don't have a credit score, but she right. figured out a new way to do a credit score by looking at people's cell phone records and other data. Or women who are tackling environmental issues like Julia Collins, who is a regenerative agriculture company that sells snacks, but also is working on a platform to help farmers and consumer products companies source regenerative agriculture-based ingredients because that's going to be better for the environment. Or Christine Mosley, she realized that there was so much food waste because farmers couldn't deal with getting the extra crops that weren't perfect looking, that weren't going to the grocery store to suppliers who could use those ingredients to make chips or cauliflower crust pizza or whatever it might be. So her company, Full Harvest, is succeeding but also helping the environment. So those are the ones who show me that they can find that grit and determination and also think of multiple ways of succeeding in these crazy times. I'd like to dig into some more of those women and specifically talk about resiliency and how I know, you know, just for example, the pandemic really shook up business at Rent the Runway. It shook things up at Stitch Fix. They're having a tough time these days at companies like The Real Real, despite the fact that I am completely and totally addicted to it. But before we do that, let's just talk about the fact that life comes at you really fast and there could be wedding bells on the horizon or a promotion around the corner or a grandchild along the way. Are you financially prepared for everything life has in store? 
If you have a well-crafted plan, you can be ready. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney. You can schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor where you'll work with an expert to review your current situation, to develop a long-term strategy personal to you, to help you embrace life's biggest moments. Schedule your free appointment today. I am talking with Julia Borston, CNBC correspondent, author of the new book, When Women Lead. So resilience, resiliency, it is so important these days. And one of my favorite facts about resilience is that it's learnable. If you decide that you want to become more resilient, you can focus on controlling the things that you can control, let go of the things that you can't, and put yourself in motion, and that helps. One of the things that the women that you spoke to had in common was that they all, they all had to overcome obstacles to get where they are, lack of funding, not being taken seriously, and that they became stronger because of these obstacles. Why do you think that is? Well, some of them told me they were eager to prove those doubters wrong, but I actually want to go back to this idea of the serenity prayer, right? What you just said of controlling the things you can control, not worrying about the things you can't. And I do really believe that resilience is a muscle that you can build and you need to practice and you need to be very conscious of building it. But I think that one way these women ended up being so resilient is being aware of what obstacles they were gonna face, knowing the size of the boulder that was gonna be pushed in front of them so they could know how heavy it was, what the dimensions were, and therefore they could break right through it. And I think sometimes having an understanding of the shapes of what you're up against makes it easier to deal with it. And a lot of women who I interviewed talked to me about how knowledge of the data, knowledge of the fact that they were gonna be judged more harshly if they showed any emotion in the workplace, that they were gonna be taken less seriously if they made jokes. Women are judged more harshly for showing humor in the office, if you could believe that, which seems crazy to me. But having a knowledge of that It didn't necessarily change their behavior, but it made them prepared if they were going to face criticism. One woman I write about in the book, Kim Taylor, she's the CEO of a company called Cluster. And she said she had read about a study that found that employees do not like receiving harsh criticism from their female bosses. And she had read that study and she said, I'm not going to be the one. I have very harsh criticism to give to an employee. I don't have time to deal with this right now. Ultimately, she hopes to be able to not have to worry about these double standards. But in the moment, she said, this is going to be more efficient if I give this criticism or this feedback to a deputy and have this man deliver this feedback. Because if I'm going to be hated for it, it's not worth it right now. So I think having an understanding of the bias can help prevent it from bothering you. And I found that really effective in my life. Yeah, that is so interesting. How has it been effective in your life? What obstacles have you encountered along the way? And look, you've been a leader at CNBC for many years. People don't stay for almost two decades and you've been there a long time. You've watched a number of young women come up the ranks. I'm sure that you have helped them along the way. What have you faced in your own career? Well, my challenges have been external to CNBC and it's mostly been comments that I've gotten from people I've interviewed or at outside companies. I mean, I've had such an amazing career at CNBC and I'm so lucky to have so many 
people I'm collaborating with, and yes, so many friends among my fellow journalists. But um, there was an incident recently when I realized the power of understanding the data. And a male communications executive called me after I'd interviewed a female CEO. And he said to me, oh, you seemed really mean in your tone with her. And at first I was horrified. I've been called many names before, including tough and relentless and serious, but I've never been called mean, at least not that I can remember. And so when he said that to me, at first I started to panic. And then I thought, wait a second, I just read this study. And this study told me that women are more likely to be judged on their style than on their substance. And women are expected to be nurturing and warm all the time. And I thought, you know what? He's just criticizing me because he has these expectations of what women are supposed to be like. This actually has nothing to do with me. I know this was a good interview. By the way, the woman I interviewed knew that this was a good interview. She didn't have a problem with it. And I said, you know, I said to him, I think I did a very fair interview. And would you have said the same thing to one of my male colleagues? And he was shocked. And he said, you know, I'll have to think about it. But for me, it was useful because I didn't let his comment bother me. And I we continued the conversation. And there were actually some valuable things he said. And I could take out those valuable things and take the valuable feedback and just take the bias and just put it to the side. It was not going to let that get me down. And it just became very useful to understand oh, I might be treated differently because there's this expectation that I'm going to behave in a certain way because I'm a woman and I'm wearing a pink dress, but I'm going to go ahead and be myself. And if I face that double standard, then I, at least I know what it's about. I really appreciate the fact that you used data to talk yourself off the ledge. Because I think if somebody had said, gosh, you were mean, right? You know, I would have been tempted to crawl in a hole because that's the last thing that I would want to be thought of as. Yeah, me too. But having this proof sitting on the side enabled you to not take it personally, to really look at what it was and where it was coming from. And that is such a valuable lesson. So what happened with him? So so we, um, he said, I'll have to think about it. Maybe you're right. And then, and then we moved on with the conversation. But it happened that he retired not that long after as you might guess, he was on the older side. But I hope I made him think about it. I hope he reconsidered his assumptions when he was judging people based on their tone. And I hope he thought about it. But I feel like I'm more confident now raising that kind of thing and trying to educate my colleagues or the people I'm interacting with, male and female, just about these bits of unconscious bias and pattern matching that can creep into our behavior all the time. These obstacles, they make us stronger when we get to the other side, but some women don't make it to the other side. They're held back. We don't hear about them becoming the next CEO because they don't get there. So how do you reconcile these two things? The discrimination obviously hurts women in the workplace, but these experiences, if you can stomach them, make us more resilient, better leaders. If you can push through, that's a huge win. I mean, there's so many different ways that women have found resilience. A number of women I talked to said they really drew on their family heritage and the fact that their ancestors had gone through a lot. One woman who, who was a female graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, and she was always in groups that were 90% men. And she really went through hell, for lack of a better way of putting it, when she was a young cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy. And now she has this amazing company that's a platform for buying and selling ingredients with transparency for companies to purchase ingredients. 
And I just was fascinated by how she managed to navigate all of these different worlds. She was at MIT, where again, she was in a tiny minority of women, and everyone gave her a hard time in all of these different worlds for being a rare woman. And for her, she drew on her family heritage. Her family had gone through a lot. Her grandparents had fled Germany. Her grandfather didn't want to be conscripted to fight in World War II, so they fled. She felt like they had done the right thing. And then when they got to North America, they first were in Canada, they did whatever it took to survive and to raise her family. And she said, you know what, that is grit and resilience. And if they could do that, then I could do that as well. And I think there's some data about understanding the struggles of your family and using that as a source of strength. There's other data showing that when you have a strong identity outside of your work, that can be a ballast as well. So a number of the women I talked to were serious athletes. And that's something that's both an identity, but also teaches a skill set where you're not competing against other people, but you're competing against yourself. And I was not an athlete in high school or college. I did dance, that was my activity. But so many of these women were serious athletes and there's a lot of correlation between people who were athletes and success in business. And what it comes down to is not practice competing against other teams, but understanding that you're gonna fail and that failure is part of the process and every failure, every success, each time you get out on the field, there's an opportunity to learn. And so athletes are taught a process, by the way, people do in business called after event reviews. Anytime you do something, figure out your performance, what you did poorly, what you did well, and what you can learn for next time. I've seen a lot of resilience in those athletes, but then also people who say, you know, I leave work and then I go do my salsa dancing, which keeps me sane. And having that thing that you could go and feel like you're good at, one of the CEOs, she's an artist, she goes and she paints when she feels like she's losing her mind at work. And having that other thing she could do that she feels confident at makes her a little stronger when it comes to those struggles at work. We all know that it shouldn't just be on the women. It shouldn't just be on individuals to make these changes. Companies have to step up too. You've covered a lot of companies. I mean, what do you think businesses need to do more of to elevate more women leaders? I think businesses are starting to understand that they will be more successful if they have diversity in their workplace, not just at the entry level, but at all levels, all the way up to the C-suite. And I've seen it in some companies where they've taken a really methodical approach to diversity. And the key thing here is it's not just about hiring. Hiring is essential. There are amazing tools. In fact, some of them I write about in the book that enable companies to hire without bias. There's so much bias that's baked into the process of hiring people based on their resumes, which aren't really an indicator of what someone is capable of, just what experiences they've had up until that point. So I think there's the hiring piece and there's some great tech-driven tools, one called Pymetrics that I talk about. There are other tools, one called Blendor, which I write about, and that helps identify bias in the hiring process. And then once you hire people, A, you need to retain them, and B, you need to make sure you're promoting them equitably. There is a story I did for CNBC about Salesforce and how they thought that they were doing great when it came to gender gaps. You know, they were hiring equally. They were really committed to pay equity. And what they discovered in doing a deep dive, and Mark Benioff was a big proponent of the digging into the data is they discovered that they weren't promoting women equitably. So men ended up making more money over the long run because they were getting promoted much faster. So I think the more companies can try to strip out the bias by really focusing on the data, not the subjective things, but the objective performance metrics, then you are going to have men and women promoted far more equitably. And I ultimately am really optimistic because the data points to the value of diversity. And if we can lean into the data and away from the bias, 
companies, individuals, we're all going to be more successful. I love the data. So I think it's fantastic that this is where your journalistic sense takes you. Before we wrap up here, what's one more story that you haven't shared that you heard from a woman in business that has really stuck with you? Oh, there are so many stories. It's so hard to pick. But I think I'm just going to go back to this idea of understanding your obstacles. And it's a very short anecdote, but I was talking to this woman, Aya Badir, and she founded a company called Little Bits, which is a kids' technology company that she then sold. She's also a Lebanese immigrant, and she's an engineer by training. So she faced all sorts of different bias and discrimination. And people asking her who her co-founders were going to be or asking her if she was qualified to run this company, ridiculous stuff. But she said to me that she was so used to facing bias and stereotypes that she prepared herself for it. And she started to think about it like remembering to wear a jacket when it's cold out. And she says, if you remember your jacket, you're not going to be cold. And I just remember this sort of matter of fact, like just be prepared for it and then you won't let it bother you. And that attitude was one of such calm strength and serenity in the face of so many challenges. I really tried to remember that. Like if we're prepared, we can handle pretty much anything. And it's really stuck with me since then. I love that. And I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. I know we can find you on CNBC. You also mentioned your website, juliaborston.com. Is that the best place for our listeners to go if they want to learn more about you? Yes, you can learn more about me on juliaborston.com. And my book, When Women Lead, you can find it at your local bookstore, on Amazon, any book retailer. And I think you'll find some very inspiring and surprising stories in there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're going to have a lot of our listeners taking your empathy quiz. I know I'm going to take it myself. It's really fun. (laughs) Yeah. Julia, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. I just wanted to take a sec to remind everyone that Her Money is also supported by BCU. And BCU is a credit union that provides a wide array of financial products and services for its members. If you are currently exploring the auto market, BCU offers financing and refinancing options, as well as an exclusive auto buying service to save you time and save you money. You can learn more at bcu.org. Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hello, Jean. That was a really good chat. She had so many good insights on just what it's like to be a female leader. Yeah, so much fun. And she also pointed out for anybody who does want to take that empathy quiz. So fun fact, the guy who did the empathy quiz that Julia has on her website is Sasha Baron Cohen's cousin, we think. His name is Simon Baron Cohen. I remember coming across his name when I was doing the research for my book, The Difference, which brought me into this land of social scientists, people like Sheena Iyengar, who did a lot of research on choosing and choices, and Angela Duckworth, who wrote Grit. I love that she digs into all of this data and reporting. Julia also mentioned that this quiz is under the resources tab of her website. So if you go there and you're looking for it, that's where you'll find it. Very nice. Really random too. <laughs> really random, right? But I, I really love this. I'm, I'm going to stop saying love because I've said it about a million times this podcast. I like that advice to just think of it like putting on your coat, right? Think of having a protective layer that you understand what's likely to come your way in the form of biases, in the form of 
obstacles and it'll be easier to plow through them. It's like your boots for a snowy day. They'll get you through the muck. They'll get you through the snow. It's not going to be pleasant while you're slogging through, but you're much better off having them than not. Yeah. I love that analogy. And I think she's terrific. I think she's terrific. I mean, there's so many of this CNBC reporters that I feel like I've been watching for so many years. They feel like old friends, even if we've never met. And Julie and I have never met. So I guess that's a compliment. Yeah, you do feel like you know these people just from watching them and reading their thoughts. It's kind of crazy. You have such insight into somebody's mind before you even actually meet them. Yeah, exactly. I know that we've got a full mailbag today, so I don't want to waste time. Let's dive right in. Yeah. Our first question today comes from Elizabeth. She writes, hi, Jean and crew. Thank you for all you do. One of these days, I'll send my bigger questions to the mailbag. But for now, this just happened. And I wonder if you have insights as I think it could help others too. Thanks to you awesome folks at Her Money, I was about to purchase an iBond. After carefully filling in everything on what seems like a fairly outdated website, instead of receiving my confirmation for my new account, I got the following email and it arrived instantly in my inbox. I won't read the whole thing, but basically it says, dear account holder, a hold has been placed on your account and you must mail physical forms in order to access your account. And it could take up to 13 weeks to get your account approved. So Elizabeth continues with her email. As I typically do when trying to sleuth something, I copied and pasted the email into Google and found a forum which corroborates that this is an issue. Do you happen to know if calling Treasury Direct can actually work? The email I received says you can't call them, but some people in the forum say that you can. The fact that it says the form not only needs to be sent in, but that it could take 13 weeks is, well, good golly, Miss Molly, in this day and age, I triple-checked everything, and I don't believe I filled anything in incorrectly. According to the forum I found, it could potentially just be random, too. Any guidance you have here is appreciated, as I was really hoping to lock in something quickly. Many thanks. Oh, Elizabeth, this happened to me, too. Exactly the same thing happened to me. I filled out the application. I thought I did everything correctly, and I got the exact same email that you got. I didn't do the sleuthing that you did. I didn't go down the rabbit hole and try to find the forum, which I'm impressed that you went to such great lengths. And so I don't know if calling Treasury Direct can actually work. My advice would be fill out the form, get the clock started. Hopefully it won't take the full 13 weeks. But in the meantime, try calling because what do you have to lose? And if you do call and you get some traction going, the fact that you have a form that's working its way through the process is going to be neither here nor there. Your account will be set up and you'll be able to buy your iBond. And should you decide that you want to capture some of the best rates that we've seen on treasuries, one-year treasuries, two-year treasuries, in years, you will be able to buy them through this account as well. So just something to put in your back pocket. Good luck. Do both. Let us know how it goes. Amazing. Thank you, Jean. Our next question comes to us from Anonymous in California. She writes, this isn't really a personal finance question, but I'm not sure who else to ask. I've been thinking a lot about the student loan problem, the high cost of everything, homelessness, food deserts, and how the wealth gap just continues to grow. 
I know our viewpoints are shaped by our own circumstances and backgrounds, but I find myself thinking more and more that the issue is not so much capitalism, but the lack of boundaries for the top 1%. People get all worked up about minimum wage increases, yet year after year, CEOs bring home millions. They claim they can't pay their lowest earners a living wage, and yet after bonuses, their annual take-home is more than most people make in a lifetime. Whenever this comes up, the answer is, well, that's what the market says they're worth. But that's no longer sitting well with me. I work for a Fortune 500 company whose CEO brought in $32 million for one year. That's insane. If the company's making that kind of money, then why are year-end bonuses limited to executives? In fact, it seems like the higher your job title, the more benefits you get, like a gym stipend, among other things. And of course, there are less than 10% of Fortune 500 companies with female CEOs. It seems like no one ever talks about putting some kind of reasonable cap on C-suite salaries. Now, I know we're America where any one of us can supposedly become as rich as we want, and I don't disagree with that. Still, at a certain level, it's just beyond ridiculous. And I think we passed ridiculous years ago. Is there any way for us to bring this into the conversation on a governmental level? And do you think there's any hope of us ever bringing those $32 million annual salaries down to a more reasonable level? Thank you for listening. I really appreciate how much you're talking about the gender wage gap, but it just seems to be a symptom of a larger problem. What a great letter. Yeah. What a fantastic letter. I really appreciate the fact, Anonymous, that you decided to write to us with this, because these are exactly the sort of issues that we should be talking about. And I don't know that I have any good answers. I don't know that I have perfect answers about bringing this to the governmental level, except we've got to get the vote out. That's how things will eventually change on a governmental level. But there are other things that you can do as an individual you can vote with your wallet. You can decide that you object to the sort of capitalism that's being practiced by these companies that are putting so much money in the hands of their CEOs and not enough in the hands of their employees. And you can decide that you're not going to buy their product. You can encourage others not to buy their products and tell people why. There's a famous statistic about how when a woman likes a product, she tells four of her friends, I'm going to botch this. I hope I'm not. But when she doesn't like a product, she tells nine. You're not liking something here, right? So spread the word about the fact that you're not liking it and start to be more conscious about how you're using your purchasing power. Same is true about where you work. I don't know what's tying you to this company, but we're still in a pretty tight labor market. And there may be opportunities for you at companies where you feel like they are more aligned with your values. I'm not saying quit your job, but I'm saying start looking. Start looking for one of those companies. And lastly, we are headed toward the holiday season and the time when much of the charitable giving in this country happens. Don't give reactively, give proactively. Think about those causes that you mentioned at 
the top of this letter, homelessness, food deserts. If those are the things that are close to your heart, then you want to make sure that your giving dollars are doing their best work for those particular causes. So I think those four things in tandem can make a difference. And if many of us who are listening decide that we want to follow in this path that you have laid out for us, that's how revolutions get started. So thank you for sharing that with us today. I'm really happy to have this discussion and I hope that we'll have it more. Yeah, me too. Really beautiful letter. If you want to write for her money, you should email me. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Jean. And in today's Thrive, if you are currently job hunting, then you've probably seen your fair share of job postings that ask for a cover letter. But in recent years, more and more companies have made them optional. And what hiring managers are looking for in a cover letter, well, that has changed too. So when does it still make sense to write one and how do you set yourself apart? At hermoney.com, we've got some simple rules that will help you craft the perfect cover letter so that you can score that interview. First, you should know that just because a job posting says a cover letter is optional, doesn't mean it is if you want to impress. A survey by Resume Lab found 75% of hiring managers still expect to see a cover letter, even if it's not required, and they give preference to applicants who submit them. This is especially important if your resume isn't exactly where you want it to be. 83% of hiring managers say a great cover letter can get you that interview even if your resume isn't up to par. The good news is you don't have to spend hours writing a long cover letter that covers your entire work history. Nowadays, hiring managers are looking for something short and sweet. It should be somewhere between 200 and 400 words, which is about a half a page, no more than five paragraphs. If you're struggling to fit everything in that space, delete any accomplishments you've already covered in your resume because hiring managers don't want or need to read the same stuff twice. So use it to talk more about why you want to work for this company, how the job fits into your career goals, and why you'd be a good fit. Finally, once you've got that letter typed up, triple check for any spelling or grammar errors and If you're applying to many jobs at once, always double check that you have the right company name and the right hiring manager at the top. You don't want something like a mistake you make because you're just going too fast to stand in the way of your dream job. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Julia Borston for sharing all the data we need to know about succeeding as a woman in business and for giving us some amazing role models to follow. I hope you're all feeling inspired. I know that I am. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.